You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 26th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show, The World versus Donald Trump. But will the rest of the UN heed Emmanuel Macron's call for a revival of multilateralism? My guests Kathleen Burke and Somnath Batabayal will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the spat gripping Australia, which reveals the uneasy relationship between national governments and national broadcasters, the efforts to interest American voters in their own midterm elections, and... Hey, we're grabbing Duncan for lunch. You want to come? Duncan for lunch. That's a good one. We're being serious. Duncan Donuts and its audacious pivot away from donuts. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. Uh, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Kathleen Burke, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London, and Somnath Batabayal from the Centre for Media Studies, lecturer in media, devel- media and Development and International Journalism at SOAS. That's a very complicated title. It is. You need to work out something easier to recite in a hurry. Uh, we will start tonight at the UN, where the General Assembly is ongoing. Much of this conclave of global leaders has been a queue of speakers taking turns to take issue with US President Donald Trump, who yesterday once again laid out his foreign policy creed of isolationism and bellicosity. Nobody took more obvious issue than one president who Trump might previously have counted as a friend, Emmanuel Macron of France, whose speech in defence of liberal multilateralism and against craven nationalism could have been readily mistaken for a point-by-point rebuttal of Trump's. Uh, Somnath, do you think that's how Macron intended it to be heard? Is he trying to put some distance between himself and Trump? Yes, I would agree uh, to that. Um, I think there are two things which we should take into account. One, the Trump and Macron are very similar kind of politicians. It's this bad term, the alpha male, kind of they personify their politics. So they were bound to clash. Going to their first meeting, that brazen, bone-crushing handshake, then him moving away towards Merkel and not meeting Trump, and then this bromance which developed. So there's been a kind of either intimacy or kind of rebuff rebuffing which has been going on. So that, the, that fact that they were bound to clash, take different positions, was going to happen. Uh, second thing is that while Trump has taken this ultra-nationalist, um, anti-global position, the Western Europe may has abdicated her, you know, Britain's, Britain has abdicated the global position, uh, Merkel is trying for, fighting for survival. So this, there was a position which was clear, and open for taking, and Macron has taken that position. And, and you know, his speech was touched on all the right things, climate change, Iran, nuclear proliferation. So this was, as you said, clearly a position against Trump, but also securing for himself a position as a global leader, which other Western powers have kind of let go. What do you think, Kathleen? Do you think Macron sees a vacancy uh, in the role of leader of the free world? Well, that's fairly obvious. He's been moving in that direction for quite some time. It also rather reminded me of de Gaulle back in the 60s, remember, when he clashed with uh, President Lyndon Johnson. And what uh, uh, de Gaulle did was not to bellow at the United Nations and say, you know, beat his chest and so forth. He started selling gold. <laughs> uh, which meant that, that uh, um, uh, dollars went 
not, sorry, selling dollars for gold, which, uh, because the United States was already worried about what was happening to the dollar, attacked it in the most fundamental way, and there was nothing Johnson could do about it. In other words, he didn't bellow. He, uh, he did things that would actually hurt at the very foundation of, of the American position. So the point is, well, there's several points, and, and I quite liked uh, my colleague's uh, uh, two points there, is that Macron has wanted to be the leader of Europe ever since he became he became head of France. Uh, that position was there for the taking uh, in the past two years after Merkel. There's no one else uh, who has uh, the position. Indeed, there's no one else who has the nuclear uh, power now that uh, now that uh, Britain is is wandering off in another direction. But he cannot do this alone. I mean, Trump can do this alone at this point, and Macron can't. So he has to mobilize. He was trying to mobilize. I will be very interested to see what he mobilizes and how long this mobilization will last. It's Somnath, is there, and this is a thing we've been seeing uh, hints of from various uh, Western leaders, certainly in the last couple of years, this realization that maybe they need to start not regarding Trump uh, as if he is a, a temporary blip that everybody can just ignore or ride out for four years or even eight years or however long this ends up lasting. And that maybe we, they do need to start thinking of ways to reorganise the West without America at the heart of it. Do you think Macron kind of is beginning to grasp that or nudge people towards it? Because as you correctly point out, he mentioned things like the Paris Agreement and the Iran Agreement, both of which uh, the US under Trump has abandoned. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, one of the most interesting things he has said is uh, that those who do not keep promises on international agreements, one should stop doing trade with them. And Paris uh, Climate uh, Climate Accord is one of them. So he's clearly trying to isolate U.S. I mean, it's a very difficult thing, of course, to do, given the trade and wealth which the U.S. generates. But the clear, strong positions which Macron wants to take and wants everyone else to take, and he's talking about uh, things like collective action, upholding sover sovereignty. So there's clearly a realization that Trump is not the most reliable. And as you said, uh, France, Germany, U UK, they can't go it alone as Trump can. So there needs to be a collective realization of this. And Macron is the person who's trying to lead this at the moment. Merkel has more pr uh, problems than Macron at home. May has enough troubles. So Perhaps it's, um, you know, the other leaders also are allowing him to take the centre stage. Uh, Kathleen, Macron is not without problems at home, though, or at least not no, without no, a, no. Prob a problem at yeah. home, which is that yeah. nobody likes him very much anymore, <laughs> as, as, as tends to be the way of things with presidents of the Fifth Republic. These are <laughs> short honeymoons yeah. uh, we, we are witnessing. Do you get the sense that either he's pitching to a domestic audience, trying to impress them by being the world leader, or is he just thinking, well, the hell with that. It's more fun and more interesting, and I can do, I can accomplish more as a global figure than a domestic one. Well, of course, you can't be a global figure without a country behind you. So this would be a rather short-term approach to these things. <laughs> he, he does, in fact, remember how to have a majority in the Assembly. Uh, he, you know, he can, he can, he has that behind him. Uh, it's only when his own uh, supporters, parties, uh, decide to wander off that he's in real difficulty. Um, yes, obviously, his poll, his poll numbers have plunged. 
Uh, he is now supported by fewer than 50% of the French population. That's quite a plunge from when he was elected. Uh, but it's a while till the next elections. And France does like being considered an important country. And Macron can certainly do this better than uh, uh, Hollande could do. So in that sense, for those who like France to make a difference, he's a good thing. But uh, he thinks France likes imperial leaders, as far as I can tell. Um, and the French are two minds about this, as, as we know. It's difficult. Um, his thing he should go for, I think, is that you cannot trust Trump to keep his word. That is to say, why have an agreement because you cannot tr trust him to keep it? North Korea has already said that, in fact, mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you know, why make an agreement? So if you, if he pounds on that one, that's, and, he, and he wants to isolate Trump, that's probably as good as any. Okay, well, let's move on uh, somewhat, in fact, half a world away, and look now at Australia. Uh, there, as elsewhere, the relationship between the government and the public broadcaster is an uneasy one, as by and large it probably should be. Australia's public broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, has enjoyed a long history of being suspected of bias and threatened with retribution by governments of all shades. The ABC is presently embroiled in a row, verging indeed on an outright brouhaha over reports that its chairman, Justin Milne tried to sack its chief economics correspondent, Emma Alberici, in response to pressure rather from the present Conservative government. And this follows the not entirely explained as yet sacking by Milne of ABC managing director Michelle Guthrie. Um, I don't want to get over-absorbed in the minutiae of this dispute within Australia, at least partly because even within Australia nobody seems entirely clear on quite what went on or why. Um, I did want to ask, though, about the relationship between a government and a public broadcaster Somnath, because it's something certainly we hear a lot of here in the UK because uh, it's the same kind of thing. Traditionally when well traditionally Labour claims that the BBC is institutionally biased to the Conservative Party and the Conservative Party complains that the BBC is a nest of treacherous metropolitan pinkos. Well it's a, and BBC is a good place to start because in the 1920s when the British Broadcasting Corporation was created there was this idea of this utopian public service. Um, <clears throat> Tom Mill's book uh, Myth of a Public Service, the BBC, puts you know, to rest any, any sense that BBC was ever independent. Then there's uh, Gardner, uh, Virginia Bones uh, ethnography of the BBC again which shows how d almost director after director have been <clears throat> forced, coerced, uh, pressured by the government. Now, this is expected. We do not, in the real pol political world, when you're funded by the taxpayer and the government decides on the funding, there will be pressure. It will always depend on particular persons who are heading the board, how they manage that pressure. And this, in this particular instance, Mill has obviously done it very badly. But when I read that text of that mail which is sent out and uh, uh, I think it's simple get rid of her the, uh, the journalist in question one of the things one finds difficult is that there is no direct mention of who has pressured him mm. you know this is a kind of general conversation was he asked to bend and has he crawled we don't know so you know to immediately say that particular people in the government or high offices pressured the gentleman uh, 
might, might be we might be reaching too far. So again, one has to see if there was any direct pressure put because this text actually doesn't say much. Uh, but in the broader question of um, do governments influence public broadcasting everywhere in every country since the 1920s in the third world uh, from the 1960s onwards? Of course, it has happened. That being the case, Kathleen, would we be better off thinking of this the other way around, in that the time to worry is when the government and the public broadcaster are not rowing? I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I have a couple of a couple of things stick in my mind. First of all, Suez Crisis. Yeah. The BBC did not bend, did not break. Uh, Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister, said, "Look." You know they're they're being you know they're they're betraying the country. They can't say things like that. Uh, they didn't break. Um, the fact that the World Service is even listened to by by uh, those who hate the West because it is more trustworthy than any other uh, broadcasting that they can come across, even their own, uh, tells me again that the BBC's the BBC the probity of the BBC uh, is rather more than almost any other one one can imagine now that's it's, different it's all, I, and also more widely admired I think outside the UK than in it well indeed uh, for a couple of reasons I mean I have always thought well always not before I was born but I have thought uh, for decades that in terms of British soft power there is nothing really to match the BBC that that provides such such uh, a quality of perception of Great Britain that I, I, I hope that they appreciate it. But yes, I mean, the point is domestically, it's more of a problem. The BBC and this this passion for balance comes up with some of the most idiotic combinations on the Today <laughs> program one can actually imagine. But uh, I agree, it is difficult. It is difficult. Uh, the thing about this country, of course, is that uh, if people... Uh, if 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 the board, if if the director general does try, did try something like this, it would be revealed so fast, that then they'd backpedal madly, you know, because uh, the BBC also doesn't like to be in a political row. It sounds as though ABC and 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 the government over there are enjoying themselves. Almost. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think they are. I mean, speaking as an Australian citizen, my only my own slightly jaundiced uh, interpretation of this story is exactly that that everybody is quite enjoying the row because there's really not an awful lot else going on. Um, <laughs> But there is an issue here, though, I think a wider one, Somnath, that when a government starts beating up on the national broadcaster and starts muttering about, and it, it, it's a common sort of conservative slash libertarian refrain now, the injustice of the licence fee, that you know, this is something people are obliged to pay, um, do you risk undermining public faith, not just in the public broadcaster, but in public institutions generally? Yes. I mean, uh, uh, every time things like this happens, uh, heads of governments like Trump will try and slash public broadcasting and, and funding. So, you know, that's the downside of it. But this kind of conversations and checks and balances, need, we need to keep on having it. One is, I mean, there are two issues here. If we're talking about government interference, we're talking only about editorial interference. We need government intervention and interference as far as securing public broadcasting Indeed. services. So, you know, the two things. To to have one without not having the other completely is a very difficult situation. And I agree with you, Kathleen, that BBC is kind of the highest example uh, when it talks about probity and, and uh, you know, um, 
the best that uh, public broadcasting service can offer. But my point earlier was that even within this pinnacle, uh, when you look at it very closely, researchers have found huge problem problems. So even within the best. So the question, the larger question is, therefore, in the 21st century, what role does public broadcasting service play? And should we give up on it and rely totally on um, private? Because the, pri the problem with private is greed becomes a factor, profit becomes a factor, while in the public broadcasting, that doesn't. So there's this balance which one needs to get to. Okay, we will take a short break now. Before we do that, though, it'd be remiss of me as an Australian talking about the ABC not to impart my favourite ever pub quiz fact, which is that the ABC's postal address in every state, P.O. Box 9994, was chosen in honour of the batting average of Sir Donald Bradman. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Kathleen Burke and Somnath Batabile. We'll be back shortly. The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive-through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Mullister, with me are Kathleen Burke and Somnath Batabayal. Now, in normal times, midterm elections in the United States are of interest mostly to friendless political obsessives, especially outside the United States. As one may glean from picking up any given newspaper, however, these are not normal times, and for that reason, these midterms, due this coming November, have become the subject of global fascination, especially among those hoping for a large-scale repudiation of the present occupant of the White House. It is a maddeningly open question, however, whether this fascination is shared by American voters. In the 2014 midterms, turnout was 36.4%. Kathleen, do you expect that to rise this time? I do indeed. Uh, both uh, Democrats who want to... Uh uh, change the uh, composition of the House and the Senate and Republicans who want to make sure they aren't changed. Um, certainly, turnout's going to be key on this. Uh, there are various other interesting things. One, of course, is, is the Me Too uh, movement, um, which has produced hundreds of more female uh, 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 candidates than has ever been seen before. Um, the, another question is, what is going to be the Hispanic American turnout? That will be crucial. Will that turn Texas back to being Democratic? Uh, that's a certainly uh, it, not a probability, but it's a possibility, if that makes any sense. If it doesn't, too bad. Um, <laughs> and, and essentially, what we have to remember, of course, and might 
who knows which way this is going to do, that traditionally in the first midterms that the public tend to vote against the occupant of the White House. That is to say, when Obama, when it was the Democrats, the Republicans took the next midterms. Uh, it's it it's may- a bit of a tradition, isn't it? You give the president a bit of a kicking to let, let, you, let them know that they're not, um, they're not getting it all their own way. Well, it might not be precisely what's in one's mind, but by that time, of course, you don't like what the president is doing, and so you think you'll have a go with, a, with a, a, another party, I suppose. But that's the tradition, so it will be interesting to see if there's such a polarization, if Republicans get their people out, whether that is negated this time. Uh, Somnath, what is being fondly hoped for here, by, at least by the Democratic Party and its sympathisers, is, is the so-called blue wave, this idea that there will be a huge repudiation of Trump, which will bring into play, which will not merely bring back what might have been lost uh, by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, but will uh, turn new areas blue, like, for example, uh, Texas, as Kathleen suggests, which has, which has been a Democratic state before, admittedly not for some decades. Um, how confident should the Democrats be about a blue wave. They were pretty confident at the last presidential election, as I recall. Well, at this, uh, you know, the term blue wave or midterm wave, again, uh, as you said, it's always anti, the, goes against the anti presidential. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but this anti uh, presidential wave went against Clinton and Obama because this liberal media, all of us, do not like Trump very much. So we're just kind of pinning it on Trump. And because Trump is there, we'll have this blue wave. But you know, uh, Clinton and Obama were much liked uh, by, you know, the liberal media. And again, there was a wave against them. Um, having said this, it appears, as you just said, Kathleen, that Democrats are appearing highly competitive in conservative districts. The battleground is opening up much more than what Clinton, uh, in the uh, Hillary Clinton's, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> the cloud hanging the, the over cloud. <laughs> So I take that back. Um, so, you know, there is definitely conversation and the polls seem to show that Democrats are making inroads into areas which was traditionally red. Now, how this will turn out, one of the things to remember, there's a 435 seats in play, which means at least 837 candidates. You know, just to put it down to Trump, and an anti-Trump uh, movement might be too much because these are local particular issues. And how this will play out, you know, again, uh, 90 days. Uh, Kathleen, as you correctly observed, turnout will be key. And I'm, I, I'm always fascinated slash appalled by low turnout figures. That's partly because I think voting is something that people should just do. And also because I come from a country, Australia, in which you don't get a choice. Uh, <laughs> even if you don't want to vote, uh, you are still compelled to at least walk up to the primary school at the end of the street and scrawl some obscenity on the ballot paper. Um, is there anything that can be done or should be done to increase turnout? Um, well, land of the free, home of the brave, and uh, you, you cannot tell people they have to vote. I mean, I agree with you. I think when so many people have died and fought to have the right to vote, it is quite appalling when people do not do so. Unfortunately, people don't listen to me on that. Um, <laughs> I... I Turnout depends on people wanting to vote for a particular candidate or vote against a particular candidate. Turnout is likely to be higher because there are an awful lot of candidates that go into that area. There are so many candidates. I mean, 43 uh, 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 representatives are not running again because things are so turbulent in their own constituencies. So in that sense, I mean, I agree that, I mean, 
every member of the uh, House of Representatives is up, and we have to remember that the intention of the Founding Fathers in the Constitution was to make certain that they are controlled by the constituency. I mean, senators are meant to look for the country. These people are meant to respond to their constituencies. So in that sense, no one can save them if their constituencies don't like them, and which also means you get some absolutely appalling policies because uh, small towns in, in rural Arkansas uh, insist on something. But, you know, that, that was the way the Founding Fathers wanted it. Okay, well, we shall move on finally tonight to what may be the least meaningful rebrand in corporate history. As of January, Dunkin' Donuts will be known merely as Dunkin', presumably in a bid to stop repelling those very many people who would totally have come into a shop full of donuts if only the word donuts did not appear on the signage. The official line is that the company, shortly to be formally known as Dunkin' Donuts, wishes to establish itself in the popular imagination as a purveyor of other things besides donuts, like coffee, for example. I, I have in my time, I'm going to start by saying had the coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of it, but it, 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 was, it, it, it was open. Um, they, they need to work on that, on the coffee, I yes. think, is, is, is my, my, my humble tentative suggestion before they go all in on this. Um, Somnath, does this alter your perceptions, opinions, view of Dunkin' Donuts significantly one way or the other? No, you know, the only time I've been in America, uh, I, my second visit to a shop was uh, Dunkin' Donuts for, my, for all my sins. And I did have a donut and a coffee. And like you, I agree um, that the coffee needs improvement. The donuts uh, are pretty good, the, in fairness. <laughs> donuts are pretty in good. fairness. But, you know, uh, you've been to India, you never think of... Calcutta as Kolkata or Bombay as Mumbai, some brandings don't work, you know, and I think, uh, so my, my vote here should have, would have been with Dunkin' Donuts. So the thing is about the, some of those city rebrands, the, the Indian ones I think have mostly stuck. I do now hear more, I, I think of it myself more as Mumbai than Bombay. Oh, the, good the, Lord, not you. The, yeah, the Calcutta, <laughs> col, the Calcutta, Calcutta one, not so much because it didn't really make... Madras, Chennai? Yeah, I, I, I would say I would say Chennai but, rather than Madras. Sadly, I wouldn't, but I'm a historian after all. <laughs> <laughs> um, those ones did stick. I mean, uh, Kathleen, does this, does this strike you? Uh, the removal of donuts from the Dunkin' Donuts mark as a, a particularly significant moment in our culture. Well, it's it, it, it's. Only the latest in a long line. Um, we used to know what I mean. BT used to be British Telecom, yeah. which had a certain ring about it. Uh, I was also noticed as we were discussing earlier. Weight Watchers is now WW. It's harder to say WW, but I suppose that means that people who are going to Weight Watchers, it's a lot easier to admit they're going to WW <laughs> instead of saying I'm actually fat and I'm going to WW. <laughs> So I, sp I can only assume that's, that's the reason. And also, they're all short. We are in a land, we are in an era of sound bites, are we not? And I've just said one. And um, it, it's an awful lot of advertising, an awful lot of, of uh, uh, companies, in fact, have uh, decided that it's God knows why that it is more memorable and easier to cope with if you've got three large capital letters than if you've actually got a, a name. So what you wanted is Duncan Coffee, don't you? Um, Duncan, what they could have, they could have gone, well, I, I think, I guess with Duncan Donuts, if they'd reduced that to the abbreviations, that, that would have... DD. That would have... That would have opened Let's up. Let's go a to whole, Would have opened up a whole <laughs> other um, can of worms. Um, Bangalore, Bengaluru? 
<laughs> again, I've, I've no, I've no particular problem. Yeah, with we that. have to stop this. Yeah, that, that, that one's yeah. That's turned into a whole pub quiz round on what Indian cities are called now. That used to be what they used to be called. I, I mean, the Somnath Kathleen there mentioned that there have been some especially idiotic ones in recent British history. The post office uh, called itself something else for a while as well. Consignia, I think, yeah. which uh, no one, knew which nobody was. understood no, at no, all, no. and then it changed its name back after realizing that the entire country now no longer understood what they actually did. Uh, British Steel called itself something else after a while as well. Can I tell you a story about Please. my college, uh, which is called School of Oriental and African Studies, and everyone thought it was very uh, colonial and African and, and all the wrong things, given that it's supposed to be a post-colonial institution. So now we call it SOAS. And it, apparently those letters don't mean anything. That's what our director has said. Uh, but isn't it in that case good if the letters don't mean anything? Because then it becomes what they end up. What they, no, well, what they end up meaning is the institution for which you work. That's that becomes the definition of SOAS. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, if nothing else is called SOAS, and then SOAS ends up being called SOAS, and that's fine. Isn't problem it? with SOAS. SOAS to say this. Yeah. What do you imply? Well, problem. Problem. In, I mean, I'm at UCL, and and uh, which is sort of a block away from SOAS, but we've also got. CIS, which is a school of Slavonic and East European studies. No one knows what that is either. That's CIS, as opposed to being SOAS. Uh, you just sort of know which region of the world it, 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 is, it reflects or it responds to or is part of. Yeah. Um, you just, well, I mean, it's easier to remember I'm going to SOAS. I'm not, but you're going to SOAS, <laughs> um, than it is to, to spell the whole thing out. It's shortness. It's like Duncan or WW. <laughs> Uh, I, I think uh, at that point we, we the, the clock is against us. Uh, thank you both for joining us, Kathleen Burke and Somnath Batabayal, and let's let's all be grateful that we're not going to be the person who is going to have to spend the rest of their lives sending letters to media outlets correcting them every time they refer to Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's edition of what I suppose we should call MH. It was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's our business programme, The Entrepreneurs. We'll have more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 midori house returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 london i'm andrew muller thanks for listening